Well, uh, it's good to see you guys this morning. My name is Dave Ainsworth. I'm one of the pastors here. And as a person in ministry, I've been in some kind of speaking role for a long time, off and on for nearly 20 years, which is wild. Um, And if you've spoken publicly for that long, you've said some pretty dumb things. Um, A lot of times for me, the dumb stuff happens when I'm trying to be clever. And so I remember once in college in front of a lot of people, I made a reference to the song Tiny Dancer, only instead of Tiny Dancer, uh, which calls to mind this, I sang the lyrics to Private Dancer, which is about a very, very different subject than Tiny Dancer. Um, I've said many, many more things, uh, dumb things privately. (laughs) One of my most like embarrassing and like shameful experiences was sending an email in a seminary class to a classmate I barely knew, just excoriating him for the way he spoke in class. And after typing an email like that, you type with such confidence. And so I gave him my phone number if he wanted to call and ask for clarification. And I think I was expecting him to call me and thank me for courageously confronting him. And he did call me, but rather than laying into me like he should have, he just slowly read back the email to me. And I just was crushed, so embarrassed at my words. Uh, The book of James... Uh, makes a startling claim. A few verses before the passage Ryan read this morning, it says in James 3, 2, we all stumble in many ways, but if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Isn't that wild? If we could just control our mouths, we would be perfect in every way, not only in speaking, but in everything thinking, feeling, doing, relating. And yet, James acknowledges that such control is an impossible task. Uh, He continues in verse 5, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Um, This imagery is so resonant with us, uh, considering all the forest fires that are started by the smallest sparks. And the Bible likens the tongue The tongue is such a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And that sounds really harsh, but if you take a brief stroll through Twitter, Facebook, Yelp, Nextdoor, the comment section on buildabear.com, like anywhere on the internet, and you will see that James is speaking very reasonably. Much of the internet feels like it's been set on fire by hell. Uh, James 3 speaks both to the great potential, but mostly to the great danger of the tongue. By our tongue, we can be made perfect or we can approach perfection as we learn to speak in a way that is holy and righteous. And by our tongue, we can be destroyed. Uh, With our tongue, we can destroy others. And by their tongues, others can destroy us. In September, we will return to the Gospel of Luke, which we had begun a long time ago, but took a break during COVID. Uh, We're going to go back to that in September. But I wanted to do a one-off sermon following our politics series titled Voices Worth Listening To. 
Um, And with this title, I'm thinking both about the voices we choose to listen to, and I'm thinking about our own voices, asking the question, is my voice worth listening to? Uh, We spent seven weeks walking through the biblical story and its application to our politics. I hope it was helpful to you, but there's so much more to learn. Uh, But where do you start? Who is trustworthy? And then if that weren't enough, God is simultaneously inviting us to speak, to add our voices to the noise. We are called to be ambassadors for God's kingdom, ready to give an answer for the hope we have in Christ. When it's time to speak, though, how do we signal to others that we're worth listening to? This is what James 3 is about. Heavenly wisdom versus earthly wisdom, unspiritual and demonic wisdom. Um, These questions raise both issues of quality and quantity. Now, James 3 is primarily about the quality of the voices we listen to. How do we know if they are good or bad, heavenly, earthly, demonic? But quantity is also relevant to discipleship today. In the time of James, quantity wasn't as much an issue, right? Christians had a lot fewer voices to choose from. They just chose teachers from among their uh, people. Not so today, though. Uh, Brett McCracken uh, wrote in an online essay the other week, he wrote, The digital age, and more broadly our secular age, has greatly expanded the horizon of ideas shaping Christians. The church is increasingly just one voice among many speaking into a Christian's life. A church's worship habits may occur, occupy, two hours of a Christian's week, but podcasts, radio shows, cable news, social media, streaming entertainment, and other forms of media account for upwards of 90 hours per week. That's crazy, right? 90 hours versus two. Is there any question who wins that battle of the mind? Um, And if that's the case for you, or even half that, 45 hours to two, it's not enough that you simply choose a good church to attend. Uh, Sundays can't be the only Christian space in your life. Even if I were a fantastic speaker, even if we were a perfect church, the sermons, 45 minutes per week, the liturgy, 30 minutes, church as an event is not sufficient. It's an important time. I hope it's valuable and formative for you. Uh, We try for quality, but it's not nearly enough in terms of quantity to cultivate in you the necessary wisdom and eloquence to flourish in faith and to be an ambassador for Jesus. So when we think about the quality of voices we allow to shape us, we also have to ask ourselves how much time they deserve relative to others. A few voices aren't worth listening to at all. They should just be banished from our lives. They're trash and poison. Uh, But many voices could be said to merit some attention, hypothetically. Practically, however, you only have so much time and mental space. And so you have to ask how much. Brett McCracken is publishing a book next year, I think in February, called The Wisdom Pyramid. And he uses this super helpful uh, visual aid. Uh, based on the food pyramid, obviously, it's a great visual. And I'll share it again on Slack and the um, blog post that accompanies it. But he's built this uh, diet out for people, this ideal diet with the Bible uh, 
providing the foundation of the pyramid. And then he moves up to the local church and church tradition, focusing on embodied rhythms of worship, wise people in physical space, and also time-tested theology, wise people in history. Um, Then he moves to nature and beauty, which is surprising to me as somebody who doesn't focus as much on that, but that is a way to receive wisdom, to get outside, to see God's creation, um, to make art, to observe and be attentive to our world. And then finally, he moves to books, um, to the internet, to media, and then at the very top with the fats and oils and Twinkies and donuts is uh, social media, uh, Twitter and Facebook and all the rest. Um, And so this is such a helpful pyramid. Um, And looking at this, it's worth asking ourselves, how balanced is our mental intake diet? Um, Our current economy and culture actually depends, this is amazing, it depends on us flipping this pyramid on its head. Like literally the GDP needs us to live a life contrary to wisdom. Um, It needs us to spend money and spend time and give our attention to the top three and not give anything to the the very free bottom uh, three. And let's be honest, many days I am a good soldier. Uh, Maybe I've done a good job avoiding outright poison, but I'm online all day long um, living off mental Twinkies and emotional beer for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And the Bible's kind of like my multivitamin that I take some days if I remember it and just hope that it covers all the junk food that I eat the rest of the day. Um, Of course, no matter what capitalism needs, like this is clearly wise. Faith requires I pursue a healthy mental diet. And it's worth asking, what if this pyramid reflected our church's mental life? Not just us as individuals, like what if it reflected my individual life? What if it reflected the church's mental life? Even if the slope of the pyramid was less and so it was uh, a little bit uh, squattier than this, but all of us were still consciously striving to include all these categories in our week. And so I encourage you when I post it on Slack, print this pyramid and hang it on your wall just as a visual reminder to see and remember what are the things that I'm not including in my week. Let this be your goal. In a year of confusion, listening to the right voices in the right quantities is essential to staying sane and faithful. Ask yourself, how much more grounded would you be if you strove for this kind of diet in your life? How would this kind of lifestyle impact your ability to be faithfully present in the world, in your relationships? Just like with a physical diet, eating healthy makes you feel better. Uh, Reading, listening, and watching healthy will make you feel better too. Quantity is an important question for the Christian disciple. But even within this diet, even if we Uh, followed it to a T, we still have to ask questions about quality. There are choices to make within each category. And so how do we decide? What does wisdom and truth sound like? And so I want to read with those questions in mind, questions of quality, I want to read James 3, 13 to 18 again and ask you to think through these verses. Um. Okay, I don't have it up here, but I'm just going to read it out loud so you can listen. Uh, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. 
But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The main point of James 3 is that character matters. The outside you should match the inside you, and the inside you should match the outside you. That's the only way to control your tongue. It's not about delivery. It's, it's about identity. It's about the heart. Um, it's not a style or technique. It's not political correctness. It's living a life of love and holiness. This is what righteousness means in New Testament ethics. Righteousness is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. Where you don't just believe the right thing, you don't just say the right thing, you don't even just do the right thing. You are right through and through. You are singularly devoted to God and his kingdom. And of course, you haven't arrived. Uh, You're still a mess. You're still a disciple in training who makes mistakes all the time. But the mistakes are honest. The mistakes come from striving after Jesus. Your heart is there. You live in the light. You love Jesus. He's your one master. You're quick to confess and repent and follow him. Contrast this with the hypocrite uh, in the New Testament and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We don't use the word hypocrisy, honestly, like the Bible uses it. We think of hypocrisy kind of like a public-private dissonance, where someone is different publicly than they are privately. But hypocrisy in Scripture is much more tricky than that. Uh, It's not a public-private dissonance, it's an inside-outside dissonance. And so it's not so much about deceiving others, though that does happen. It's more about deceiving yourself. The Pharisees were self-deceived. They thought they were holy, truly, but they weren't um, because there was an inside-outside conflict. The Bible calls this being double-minded. And this double-mindedness is what James is constantly warning his readers about. We see this in James 1 when he contrasts the person who hears the word with the one who both hears and does it. Uh, We see this in chapter 2 where James talks about the importance of faith and works. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And then in chapter 3... He applies this idea to our words, to our voice. He basically says, don't tell me you love God when you curse people created in the image of God. That's impossible. Um, With our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. How can the same mouth bless God and curse people who are made in the image of God? Something must be wrong. And that's how James encourages us to evaluate the voices in our lives, including our own voice. He asks, who is wise and understanding among you? 
By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Does someone want to be your teacher? Are they offering themselves as model citizens, as a justice warrior, a thought leader, a mentor, theologian, pastor, life coach? Let him prove himself by his works in the meekness of wisdom. Ask yourself, is her wisdom and voice first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere? Only then should you trust her. This is why 1 Timothy 5 warns us to be slow when anointing people as spiritual leaders in our churches. It says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. The sins of some people are conspicuous. They're obvious, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later, and so we should wait. The same thing goes for good works. So also some good works are conspicuous, but even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Over time, character is revealed. And so essentially we should wait for evidence. Now we are much better at being careful with pastors, but as Brett McCracken noted in a digital age, there are a lot of voices which are essentially pastoring us. They're essentially our pastors without going through this 1 Timothy 3, 5, James 3 process. And so if you think about it, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all of these media sources actually ask us to follow people, to follow them, uh, to be their disciples. Who are we following? How many celebrities, influencers, untested voices are we hastily anointing as shepherds and teachers over our lives, in total or in part? James 3 wants us to be careful. When giving someone authority, even soft authority in your life, consider their character. Don't just look at their talent, their presentation, their power, their tribe. These things have a lot of purchase in today's world, but they aren't markers of heavenly wisdom. They are at best neutral. Um, If you want to know whether someone is worth following, don't just listen to what they say. Listen to their lives. Now, this is admittedly hard from a distance. Uh, Paul and James were writing in a time where the only teachers available to you were in person, and you could easily evaluate their lives. Um, This is why the wisdom pyramid is shaped the way it is, right? It prioritizes the Bible, the local church, local relationships, time-tested theology, and saints from church history and nature. The bottom of the pyramid is a lot easier to vet um, in line with James 3. As we move up the pyramid for books and websites and personalities and social media, we may not be able to examine lives closely. Uh, Just because it's difficult, though, doesn't mean we should be any less careful. And while you can't evaluate character definitively from afar, that would be unfair to the person that you're speaking about, you can approximate it and use it to be discerning. Um, And that's because all communication signals character. This is a biblical principle. All communication signals character. In the Gospels, Jesus speaks frequently about how our words reveal what's inside of us. Matthew 15, 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And so this is sort of where the lie of the, of the hypocrite breaks through, that inside-outside dissonance sort of shows itself. Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, 
and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And here, Jesus isn't talking about explicit evil. He's talking about the words we say in passing. He goes on to verse 36. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. It's the little things that signal to us someone's character. Um, I was really struck by that, thinking about the day of judgment, like, What if we were only justified, only convicted based on passing words, careless words? Um, And we would maybe want like, no, like, look at my speeches, like, look at my performance, look at, look at the things that I meant to do. And God would be like, no, I'm I'm actually going to focus on these things because they are more revealing, right? They reveal the unpolished, authentic, deep version of ourselves, And because of those tells, we have the ability to listen for the heart in the same way Jesus listened. And listen, we must. Here's the thing that I am really eager for you and us to know and remember. It is that good character reveals a sound mind and bad character reveals an unsound mind. Good character reveals a sound mind, and bad character reveals an unsound mind. Uh, Society used to teach and uh, extol intellectual virtues, virtues like humility and curiosity and diligence and others. And I I wish we still did, but we don't. Um, The truth still stands, though. You cannot be wise and wicked at the same time. Character matters. Uh, In James 2, this just continues the logic. Uh, Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And And James responds, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And then James 3 just applies that principle to wisdom. You say you have wisdom. Show me your wisdom apart from your works and I will show you my wisdom by my works. Show me your intelligence apart from your works, and I will show you my intelligence by my works. So James 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So if someone has questionable character, then that means we should also question their intellect, uh, the ability to think and speak the truth. Um, This connection between wisdom and character is all through the scriptures. Um, It's very foreign to us, but it is um, full of uh, Proverbs defending this. Wisdom and righteousness always go together. Foolishness and wickedness always go together. And so that to be wicked is to be foolish and to be foolish is to be wicked. To be wise is to be righteous and to be righteous is to be wise. This is the whole person vision that the Bible extols and everyone is always moving in one direction or the other. The mind of a double-minded person should not be trusted. Uh, He is not well. She is not well. And so we should be cautious around them. And you should definitely not hold them up as a great teacher. Uh, You can't separate someone's ability to think well from their inability to live honorably. And that's hard for us because we have been raised in a culture that has consistently separated wisdom from character. 
Uh, we think of those things as separate categories. We don't even hardly use the word wisdom anymore, which shows how much we've lost this whole person idea. Modern uh, capitalist people have divorced intelligence, success, talent, skill, giftedness from virtue and character. Uh, so you can be a not great person, even a terrible person, and still be widely respected if you're smart, talented, or accomplished. And increasingly, that person is not just celebrated within their field as an amazing athlete or a talented artist, a gifted a preacher, a great inventor, a skilled entrepreneur, things which might be objectively true. That's true about them. But our culture will actually look to such people for general wisdom about the way things work. Uh, some personalities deserve that respect 100%. Um, there are so many uh, celebrities and uh, leaders, thought leaders, which are good and great men and women. Um, many, though, do not. Uh, warrant that respect, and yet they remain influential voices. But the biblical fact is you can't be wise and corrupt at the same time. And an uh, important caveat I want to make, I am not talking about differences of theology, religion, politics, conviction, um, that you can be wise and think very differently. What I am focusing on is a person's character. I'm saying that you cannot be wise and controlled by jealousy. You cannot be wise and motivated by selfish ambition. You can't be wise and gripped by pride, be regularly full of yourself. You are not wise if you are consistently cynical. You can't be wise and marked by rudeness, known for mocking other human beings. You can't be wise and be quick to anger. You can't be hateful. You can't be racist or misogynist and still be a person uh, with a great intellect. You can't be wise and be a liar or a cheat. You can't be vain or lazy. You might be smart. That person might be talented. They might be engaging and dynamic and truly gifted, but they are not wise. And James 3 calls us to slow down and ask ourselves, what is the character of the persons in my life and world claiming to be wise and understanding? Who is wise and understanding among you? How do we answer that question? It's a lot easier to answer that question in a local church setting and with local relationships. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But we should also ask the same question and use the same filter for all the voices in our life. We should look to good conduct, people who show their works in the meekness of wisdom. Verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. And how many voices... How many of our voices are disqualified based on this verse alone, right? When we speak from jealousy and selfish ambition, people whose manner of being cancel out whatever true statements they might make. Friends, be careful how much you trust such people about anything, but especially matters related to God. Matters of justice and mercy, grace, humanity, love, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. 
but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Um, to be clear, this isn't cancel culture. And so this doesn't mean that we hate someone. We don't need to ignore them. We can acknowledge their expertise. We can receive it. We give credit where credit's due. But a specialized gift does not annul questionable character, especially if they claim to be disciples of Christ, saying they love God while regularly expressing hate or indifference toward people created by God. If from the same mouth come blessing and cursing, you should question their wisdom and back away from them. Even if you technically agree with what they're saying, find someone else to learn from. Good character is an intellectual virtue. A humble people are wise, smart people. People who are slow to speak and quick to listen are wise, smart people. Kind and generous people are wise. People who don't show favoritism, but are open to reason from anyone, who are peaceable. All these things are marks of wisdom and good thinking, and we should lean in and listen to those people. But anyone whose behavior and words reveal bad character should give you pause because sin has a corrupting effect on the mind. And this is a tough word because it puts an asterisk next to a lot of people, especially in an age of social media where people are constantly speaking. And the proverb says where words multiply, sin multiplies. And so we see a lot of this in people. It might even asterisk us, right? And that's part of James 3, James 3, 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. It's a warning to us. Uh, James 3.14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, um, we should be very slow to lay hands on others. We should be incredibly slow to lay hands on ourselves, right? An Instagram account is not a speaking contract, right? Wisdom is recognized, not claimed. And wisdom can be lost too. Uh, this is part of my like heart for this sermon is... Over the past five to 10 years, there have been numerous public Christian figures who I used to admire greatly, but I have had to sort of slowly back away from and temper my um, enthusiasm for them. And it's not always because of what they spoke. Um, it was because of how they spoke. And then usually because of how they responded when they were corrected. Uh, these are people I might agree with almost entirely uh, on paper, but I find myself increasingly uncomfortable with the way they speak about other Christians, about other human beings, about people they disagree with. Um, it is clearly not heavenly wisdom. And it's sad and sobering to have those feelings about someone, but honestly, the decision to back away almost always pays off. Um, it it's really sad, and I hate to say it, but give it a couple years, and without observable change, they'll embrace heresy or hate or both. They fall off the tightrope. Um, I'm thinking of people who I've already seen, both on the left and the right. I'm thinking of people who I'm presently concerned for as you just watch their tone change and move away from Christ-likeness. And it does mostly have to do with tone and the way they treat people they disagree with. Again, it's not necessarily because 
they are espousing something that is false. Um, I want to be careful judging someone's tone. My personality is pretty flat. Um, I'm a peacemaker to a fault. Um, and so I can't expect people to speak like me, and I actually don't want them to. Um, I want to grow in courage. Um, right now, I can think of many angry Christians who are Christ-like in their anger. And there's a way to be angry that doesn't curse image bearers. And anger which springs from an abundance of love, not the absence of love. And I'm personally learning and paying close attention to these brothers and sisters on how to be righteously angry in the way that Jesus is. However, there are many, many more angry Christians, cynical Christians, whose anger and cynicism is not Christ-like. And they run the risk of abandoning the way of Christ because of their anger. Um, I don't know if you saw this, um, only if you sort of know evangelicalisms, but a very prominent evangelical this week punched a protester following the Thursday night convention, he, a protester on a bike, and he just punched him off his bike. At least the video seems to reveal that. And it is wild. This is a guy who 10, maybe 10, 15 years ago, wrote two biographies, bestsellers on William Wilberforce and John Newton and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, two of these lions, Protestant saints. And in one sense, it's shocking to watch this video of a person who, in theory, believes so much of what I believe. But in another, it's not shocking because he's been punching people with his voice for years. And so years ago, you just started moving back away from him, concern for him. And it is something that we need to be discerning in the voices that we listen to. Uh, tone is not the problem. It reveals the problem. Christians who belittle other Christians, people who villainize their political opponents, voices who only interpret the news with sarcasm, man, be careful these are tongues of fire that will light you on fire. By contrast, in line with James 3, there are other voices which bring peace. There are people who believe very different things from me, Christian and non-Christian, who I am so eager to listen to and learn from because of the character of their voice. Authors and voices who I'm drawn to because they sound like Jesus. Um, I'm thinking Brian Stevenson, Beth Moore, Ray Orlitton. Uh, there's, there's so many voices here. The author Zadie Smith. I don't know anything about her faith, but I heard an interview of her once, and she was just dripping with wisdom and grace in the way she spoke. Uh, a new guy I'm following on Twitter, Nathan Luis Cartagena. He's so intelligent. I'm learning so much, but somehow... On Twitter, his kindness just comes through. Like, you just know that he's kind in the way he's speaking. A recent article on Christian unity by Peter Kreeft, the Catholic philosopher, he challenged the many branches of the global church to listen to each other's saints. Um, and so he's thinking about between Catholics and the Orthodox Church and thousands of Protestant branches, the church has spent much time and effort listening to our differences and sort of analyzing and, and focusing on those things. 
And he suggests that perhaps we should spend more time and effort listening to each other's saints. Uh, Not so we can solve disunity or fix the church, but so we can just become more saintly, more Christ-like, more in love with and in service of our common Lord. And that's such fantastic advice. Who are the saints you need to prioritize in your life? Who are the people marked by heavenly wisdom? Not just in what they say, but how they say it. The voices that will draw you to Jesus and make you more Christ-like. Listen, they may not make you smarter. They might not prepare you to win your next political, theological argument with your crazy uncle. In fact, their influence might make you worse at arguing. You'll be too kind, too humble, too peaceable. But that's heavenly wisdom for you. It's foolishness in the eyes of the world, but it's wisdom in the eyes of God. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So you aren't guaranteed a harvest of influence with heavenly wisdom. You aren't guaranteed a harvest of power, but you are guaranteed a harvest of righteousness. What if we were that kind of church in San Francisco? What if we were marked by heavenly wisdom? Because again, this isn't just about the voices we listen to. It's about our voice. It might not mean that we win more arguments. No one's going to give us the stage, but that's okay because as CJ said last week, there's a way to win that's actually losing and there's a way to lose that's actually winning. Could citizens be a space that's pure, free from selfish ambition and pride, free from competing insecurities? Could the church be a space that's gentle and open to reason? It might be one of the only such spaces in the city. Could it be a space that's full of mercy and good fruits where everyone is shown grace, even people who are not in the room? receive grace from us, a place marked by love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control, where we're impartial and sincere. We don't play favorites. We're not hawking political agendas. Our kindness is also not fake, a scheme to win people over. We're sincere in our conversation and in our attention and our love. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Wouldn't that be powerful? Uh, J.I. Packer, a world-renowned theologian and a Protestant saint, uh, he's one of those saints that we should read. He died last month at the age of 94. He said in 1991 that he wanted to be remembered for challenging evangelicalism's personality cult. He said, I hope to be remembered as a voice encouraging people to think rather than as a personality whose felt status and charisma stopped them thinking a voice that called people back to old paths of truth and wisdom, like John the Baptist crying in the wilderness. John the Baptist didn't want to make a name for himself. He wanted to make a name for Jesus, right? He wanted to get people to think about the kingdom of God, to repent for its coming and to to follow the real Messiah. And so who are those voices for you that point to Jesus? What information sources contribute and feed that voice in you so that you also are cultivated in pointing to Jesus? Uh, One of my favorite 
verses in all of Scripture is Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. And so literally the word is like, let no rotten, dead, putrefying uh, talk, moldy talk come out of your mouth. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And so in that case, anger might be appropriate. Uh, Sarcasm, a funny joke, it might fit the occasion. A string of curse words might fit the occasion as long as the aim is giving grace to those who hear. Of course, the only man who was able to control his tongue all the time was Jesus. And like James 3 predicts, he was a perfect man. To be with Jesus is to be in the presence of heavenly wisdom, first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And whenever he speaks, he speaks so as to give grace to those who hear. He was perfect. He was perfect for us. He died the death that we deserve so that we might live the life that only he could earn, right? James is ultimately pleading with us to hold fast to that voice. That's why we're careful about who we listen to is because we ultimately want to listen to Jesus. We don't want to lose his voice in all the noise. And we live in this time when so many people are losing the voice of Jesus. He's getting drowned out by uh, earthly, unspiritual, and demonic voices. And so as we consider the quantity and quality of our mental diet, the voices we take in, the quantity and quality of our own voice, how much we speak, whether we should be listened to, and what does Jesus's voice say to you this morning? Uh, What fits the occasion in your life? What is the grace you need to hear from him? As CJ shared in the confession and assurance, Jesus's voice over you is not shame. It's not guilt. It's not disappointment or frustration or anger. He has no selfish ambition where he's hopeful that you'll be, uh, he'll be able to leverage you for his glory. That's not his desire. In love, He is inviting you to peace and patience and a harvest of righteousness because only his word can protect you from the hellfire of other people's tongues. His piece of the pyramid is the biggest, the foundation to everything else. And so let's go to him first. Let's listen to Christ, the voice who's worth listening to. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for your voice. We're thankful for your sending Jesus here on earth so that we could see and hear your voice in a human way, both God and man together. We're thankful for the spirit which inspired God's word and which illuminates our hearts, gives us eyes to see and ears to hear heavenly wisdom We're so grateful that there is such a thing as heavenly wisdom. And reading the news, uh, watching the internet, relationships that we're in, sometimes it feels like there's no such thing, that, that it's just selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, that that's what runs the world. But we know that that's not true, that your grace and mercy are present. They are there for us. 
We receive your forgiveness. We receive your freedom and your peace. And we ask that we would be people who would give that freedom and peace and patience and grace to others, that we would be um, a light in the darkness, uh, that we would be a balm to people's souls. Uh, Give us wisdom on who to listen to and give us wisdom on how to speak. Uh, We're thankful for you and all you've done for us. Help us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.